Can God be involved in creation? And if he can be involved in creation, to what degree is he involved? What is it like when he gets involved? There's a way of thinking that has likely influenced you without you realizing it. And that way of thinking goes like this. There is a God who created all things. And he's impersonal, and he just created it, and he walked away. And he's not involved. And that way of thinking has influenced you more than you realize. But Christmas has come to be near and involved into every aspect of your life. Let me just dismantle really quickly this idea of an impersonal God that is uninvolved. Let me ask you the question. What is better, what is greater Something personal or impersonal? I think we would say that the personal is greater. A blade of grass is of less value than you because you are more personal than the blade of grass. You think, you feel, and you act. If if someone gets hit by a car, it's a big deal because a human has far more value than this blade of grass because the human is more personal. However, if you think that God is impersonal, and you are making the claim that you are personal, and that personal is better than impersonal, then you are making yourself greater than God. And humanity's been trying to do that since the beginning. And he is impersonal, then we must be of lesser value than blades of grass, because blades of grass are more like God than we are. If God is impersonal, then the couple who is in love that is getting married on their wedding day They have descended into a disgusting display of personal love. And people should not be there crying tears of joy and laughter, but they should have tears of sorrow because these people have been tricked by chemicals in their brain to fall in love, devote themselves to the rest of their life to each other, and be very personal. They've descended into personality, and it is disgusting. If God is impersonal, that is. But if God is personal, then on that wedding day, they have ascended into heights of what it means to be a person and to love and to cherish someone else, to give yourself off to another. And when you are at your Christmas dinner and you're celebrating with people, you're reaching higher into the heights of what it means to be personal. And when you're giving gifts, you're reaching higher into the heights of what it means to be personal because God is a person and he is personal with humanity And so when you give gifts, you're doing like what God does, who gives gifts to you. And when you're sitting at the dinner table and you're enjoying the people that you're with, this is pointing forward to the personal day when we sit down at the eternal wedding feast with God. So personal is better, and we are made in the image of God, who is personal. Now, we ask, since it is clear that God must be personal, can he get involved with creation? And if you say he can't, I just simply ask, why not? This is God. He can rend open the heavens and come down if he so wants to. Now, you might say, well, I haven't experienced him in a personal way. Yes, maybe so, but that isn't proof that he isn't personal. That is just proof that you have not experienced him in a personal way. So we are entering into the series called The Christmas Playlist, The Road Home. And it's connected to the series that we were just in and the series that we're going to continue back after Christmas is over. And in the series, 
playlist, The Road Home, what we're finding is that God's people, up to three times a year, would take a spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the city of God, and then they would climb up to the top of Mount Zion, and there it's the Mount of Joy, the Mount of God's presence, and they would worship him, the God who is near him. And in, these, in this, what we saw in the Psalms are these songs that they would take, that they would sing on this spiritual pilgrimage as they're going to their homeland, their Jerusalem, their city of God. And so the same thing for us, each and every single one of you are on some type of spiritual pilgrimage, on your way, hopefully to God, in the celestial city. And each year, you are taking multiple pilgrimages, where you are longing to discover the God who is near, and as you do, you are transformed by him. In the same way the Israelites sang songs on this journey, the same way through the series, we're going to sing Christmas songs. They give us hope and remind us that we have a God who is near, who has rent open the heavens and come down. So for the rest of the series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story. This, it's a 650-year pilgrimage that is taken from Babylon to This little infant king, where those who find him drop to their knees and worship him. And it's 650 years because something happened 650 years before Jesus came. God's people had rebelled from him. God exiled them out into the wilderness to wander into Babylon. And then God raised up a leader there who would eventually be brought to the number two person in command in all of Babylon, and he would tell this group of people, this strange group of people called the Magi, about a coming king who would rescue all the world and lead the world on a spiritual pilgrimage to their true home. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow Daniel and his friends and how they did something in Babylon, in this evil city, that caused people in this evil city to start longing for the true king. So that's our journey. This is, by the way, the longest introduction to a sermon I have ever given, and I've got another page of Bible verses to read to you. So don't let me lose you. If I do lose you, it's my fault, so help me not lose you, okay? So I'm going to read Matthew 2, then I'm going to jump in and read a verse in Daniel 5, and then Daniel 1, 1 through 7. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I may come and worship him too. But Herod actually, we find out later, wanted to kill him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
Then opening the treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, by the way, these were the Magi, the wise men, also known as the Magi. The chief, 650 years ago, of the Magi became Daniel. Now, here's Daniel 5.11. This is the proof that he became king or ruler over, the chief over the Magi. There is a man... And by the way, you want to listen closely to this, because the greatest proof that Jesus is the Son of God who's come into the world is everything in the Old Testament that's pointing forward to him. So listen closely. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, of the enchanters, of the Chaldeans and the astrologers. So you see this man in a foreign land, worship, where a land where they're worshiping false gods, and he is appointed the chief over the people who are meant to teach the world about these false gods. It's amazing what God's doing. So now we go all the way to Daniel 1. Here is why Daniel has found himself in this evil city called Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. This is people from Jerusalem being brought, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand before the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. In other words, they're taking some young men from Judah, the the Israelites, and they're going to put them in Babylon to learn. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. All right. Now the first thing you absolutely have to see is that Throughout the Bible, when the Bible is referring to you as a Christian and is describing what the Christian life is, the word that's most often used is exile, foreigner, a wanderer in the wilderness and wasteland of this world. But God shows up in the midst of it all. That's what Christmas is about. So at the beginning of this story, not where Jesus is born, But 650 years earlier, here is what has just happened. God's people are off on rebel roads. They are mad at God. They want nothing to do with God. They flirt with God and they flirt with other gods all at the same time trying to get from God and all these other so-called gods what they want in their life so they can build up their own little nice kingdom. And God is the God who is near. He sees it all. So what is the result of them doing this? God exiles them. He raises up King Nebuchadnezzar to go into Jerusalem, take over Jerusalem, and banish his people from Jerusalem. 
And some of the young men were Daniel and his three friends. So they're, ba- they're, they're exiled to Babylon underneath the evil king, and the evil king says you must learn the ways of the Babylonians and be trained in the ways of the Magi. So here's the point of what I'm saying. God's people's sin is the cause of their exile. And it's the cause of them being put underneath this horribly evil king. And you're probably saying, well, why in the world would God do that? Because he's the God who is near. And he sees what's happening. And he gets involved in order to bring his people back to him. He's exiling them so that they might long for him again. This is what God does. If you are running straight into the pits of hell, he trips you up. He makes you stumble. He makes you fall. He makes you get bruised. And you look up and you say, who did that? And God said, I did. I did it because I'm saving you. I did it because I want you. I did it because I'm wanting you to turn back to me. It's the same story of Adam and Eve. They want nothing to do with God anymore. The tree is just the way out. So they eat. And God says, okay, go. And they go where? To the east of Eden. Babylon is to the east of Jerusalem, the city of God. They're exiled. And it's because they have been tricked by some evil serpent. Do you know that all evil kings in the Old Testament are aligned up in God's eyes with this evil serpent? In in fact, Pharaoh, this evil king in Egypt, wore a snake on his crown. In other words, here's what's going on. There is a pattern in our relationship with God, humanity's relationship with God. God is a God who gets involved. He's present. He's with us. And you know what that does? It forces us to deal with him because he is God. And he says, live like this. And we say, no way. So we don't. And well, he says, okay, go, do whatever you want. And we go and we do whatever we want, and our life falls apart, and then we start shaking our fist at God. How could you let this happen to me when we've done it to ourselves? We hate him for not giving us control, and then when he says, okay, fine, take control, and our lives are ruined, we blame him for it. And I got to say, we can't think we aren't doing this. We can't think that our own sin isn't causing us to experience minor exiles or maybe major exiles. We're wondering where the hell God is. How come he hasn't been present with us? And it's because we have pushed him out. We have have run into the pits of hell. And we're wondering why God is not with us. But Christmas is the story of him coming. So we've taken rebel roads. And we're wondering why we're underneath the rule of some evil king. Now I got to tell you, the evil king could very well be you. Because here's what God is doing. He's saying, this I've created you, and I know the best way for you to live. So follow me in my ways, and we want nothing to do with it. We want control of our life. We want power over our life. And so we live the way we want to live. And we are the evil king that is ruling over our lives, that are ruining our lives, and we're shaking our fists at God about what's happening. Or another very evil king, potentially the most evil king that there is, is the culture that you are in at any present time. If you look throughout history, I'm going to make the argument that the most powerful king of any given time is the culture that the people are in at that given time. 
And it's an evil, powerful king because we obey it and we have no idea we are obeying it because we know no other way. And I'll prove this to you. Your great-great-grandchildren are going to look back at some of the things that you're doing right now and they're going to call you evil for doing it. We've done the same thing to the generations before us. Why? Because we are all a product of the culture we are in. It is a far more powerful king than we realize. The story of Christmas is Jesus coming into a world, into a culture, and into your face. And even there in the beginning as an infant, he doesn't even make the claim that he is the king. He doesn't have to. There's been enough written about him. We even see these magi whose job it is to appoint kings come in to a foreign land, into the land of their enemies, and they go up to the king's throne, Herod, and they say, we're looking for the true king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Jesus has to say nothing, and the nations are already coming and bowing down. When God gets personal with his creation, he is a threat to every king involved, a threat to its power, the very power of the world. And he, when he gets involved in your life, he's a threat to you and to your power. So you want to get rid of him. And that's what happened with God's people. They want God out. And Daniel and his friends are exiled because of it. Now we see Daniel and his friends are godly men. But because of the culture that they were in that was rebelling against God, they are swept up into that exile. So then Daniel finds himself underneath the rule of an evil king in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king is forcing Daniel and his friends' hands to obey him over their own God, to obey the ways of the culture over their God's culture. And they say, no, we want no part in that. We will live the way our God has told us to live. And as we keep following in the story and we move through, Genesis, or move through Daniel 1 and Daniel 2, here's what we find. This king goes to the next level. King Nebuchadnezzar, this evil king of Babylon, he has a dream. And he goes to the Magi and demands them to interpret this dream because that's what the Magi did. Only he said to them, if you can't interpret this dream, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill all of the rest of the Magi. And then the, the king realizes, well, now they're going to they're going to make up a story about what the interpretation is because they don't want to die. So he says, but for, so first, before you tell me the interpretation, you've got to tell me what the dream was. I'm not telling you what it is. I need to know that you even know the dream that I had. And the Magi said, this is impossible. Nobody could do this. So the, the king says, okay, all the Magi, whoosh, they're going to be gone. So Daniel, who is a Magi in training, and his friends are about to be wiped out. So Daniel, what does he do? He prays. You know what God does? He gets involved because he is a God who is near. And here's what happens to Daniel. He prays. He has a vision in the middle of the night, maybe a dream. And he has the dream, and he knows what this evil king dreamed, and he knows the interpretation of it. Now, I don't get this. I don't understand the dream thing. I think there's a reason for that. I don't think that God primarily is communicating to us through dreams, primarily. Especially in our culture today. Do you know why? Because we have God's word. Do you know God's word and what happens to Daniel in this, in this dream that he has is essentially the same thing. When, when we talk about the Bible, what we're talking about is God rending open the heavens, ripping the heavens open, and speaking 
speaking words down to humanity. That's the primary way God reveals himself through the Bible. If God is personal, then why can't he do this? There's no reason he can't. You just don't believe it's true. You're entering into the conversation with already a belief that this can't happen. So you're going to say, oh, it can't happen. But if you enter into the conversation with already a belief that God can do this, well, then you look at it with awe and wonder and mystery. By the way, side note, a lot of people will tell me, you know what, David, if people, if, if like God would just speak to me in a dream, if he'd show me some miracle, I think I might finally believe. And I don't know if that's actually true. Because oftentimes in the Bible, when God shows up like that, it terrifies people and they want God to go away because he is so threatening. So here's the point I'm making in all of this. God is getting involved in a personal way with Daniel in this dream. And because God does this, he delivers Daniel and his friends and the rest of the Magi. Because now he knows the dream and the interpretation. He goes to the king and he says, here's what it is. And and the, the king says, there's no one like you in all the land, Daniel. I'm appointing you now the chief magi. So now this foreigner who belongs nowhere in this spot of being the chief magi is now the chief magi. And you know what he's doing? Well, he's responsible to teach all the rest of the Magi. So what's he teaching them? Oh, he's teaching them all about the Old Testament. What's the Old Testament talking about? About this coming Savior who will come to rescue the world and bring the earthly city out of the earthly city into the celestial city of God. Whew. So God's on the move through his words to his people and delivering them. Now, here's my point again. When you read the Bible, do you know what you are doing? You are reading words that have come through the heavens that have been ripped open down into the pages of the Bible. And as you read them, you are reading the very words of God to you in a specific place, in a specific time, into a specific culture, and into your heart. The question is, will you rend your heart open to hear them? So if you will, rend your heart open or maybe allow God to rend it open, you go to Matthew. And in Matthew, we see that God comes into the world and is a threat to every single king that there is. The Gospel of John's a little bit different. The Gospel of John starts out, and he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. And then we find out later that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus is the word that has rent open the heavens and come down to be our deliverer. The same way Daniel was delivered by the words of God, the same way you are delivered by Christ. The very word of God. And look, look at the path he takes. He is the king of heaven who has come down where? Into exile, into a foreign land. To be a wanderer in this world that wants nothing to do with him. And he comes into the arms of a humanity that has been at war with his father since the beginning of time. Only he's the better Daniel because Daniel was exiled and Daniel did not want to go. Jesus did. He looked down upon the earthly city and he saw you. He saw your friends. And he was compelled to make his way down. 
and then let's just keep following this road. So going on in Matthew, what we see is this Herod, this king at the time of Jesus, is following in the same footsteps as this evil king Nebuchadnezzar. And what Herod does, he feels so threatened by this coming Christ that he orders that all baby boys around the same age as Jesus in this given area be executed. A massacre to infants because this king is so threatened by this Christ. So, what happens? Well, how, did, how has he lived through it? Well, Joseph, his earthly father, has a dream. And God tells him, go to Egypt. Now, it is not by accident that Jesus makes his way into Egypt. Egypt is known by God's people as the place where God's people were slaves for many, many, many years. And do you know how they were freed? The work of God, the words of God. God sends a plague down on Egypt so that God's people would be released. What we see with Christ is he does not send a plague when he comes. He eats the plague. The plague swarms him up. So on the cross, he becomes the slave to sin and death. He's exiled into the ultimate archetypal Babylon, the evil city of hell. And he's swallowed up by it all. And then he busts through death, rends it open, and brings you with him. And he defeats the ancient serpent that keeps coming over and over and over to plague our world. On the cross, he's covered with your sin. And he's swallowed up by death. And he breaks through it so that sin has no control of you anymore. So that death has no hold of you anymore. And now that you're made alive, you can go on the spiritual pilgrimage. And you know where he is. He's crucified outside the city gates. Outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Outside of the gates of heaven. But when he dies there, outside of the gates, the gates are opened up. See, he is the key. And he is the way. And he's the truth. And he's the life. And if you want to go through the, into the celestial city, he is your path. So, please, do not try to make your home on the earth. This is not your home. You are in exile. But it one day will become your home. Because he is at work. See, here's what he's doing. As soon as you try to get heaven out of earth, you lose heaven. But if you will see him, the king, as heaven itself... You go down and you fall at your feet and you worship him. What you find is that you're beginning to drink up the stuff of heaven, the living waters of heaven. And then now these living waters are stirring in you and now the things that you are doing are beginning to bring heaven here on the earth. So you start the process now and one day he will return and finish it. But you absolutely must, like these magi, find yourself bowing at the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you realize that he really is this king, you will go and search for him to the ends of the earth. And there at the ends of the earth, when you don't find him, you look behind you and you find out he followed you all the way there. Because that's the kind of king he is, a pursuing king, a king who rends open the heavens and follows you to the ends of the earth to get you. Enjoy Christmas. I mean it. Because it is the time that we realize God is near. And if he is near, 
and he is good, and he is wise, and he is powerful, then that means you have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, nothing to be depressed about, because you have him. And when you face your fears, and when you face depression, and when you face everything that you are worried about, he will use that fear, that worry, and that part of you that's depressed to transform you because he is a God who is near. He is at your side. He fights for you in front of you. And then when it's time for you to fight, he steps to your side and says, let's fight together. That's the kind of God he is. You're not fighting your battles alone. Sometimes he fights them for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this truth that our hearts would be torn open so we might believe. So we might trust that you are not a God who is distant. You are not a God who is impersonal, but you are a God who is personal and near. And you're fighting for us. Help us believe, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.